Hello again. This is Jim Patton, your host of the MOH podcast. We're back with another uh, tape from Winky. We're still listening to the very, very old tapes. Uh, I believe this one may still be one from the Reedley revivals. And um, this one has to do with the difference between love and selfishness. It's one of the most fundamental messages that Winky brings. It's one that helped me and has helped many, many people uh, with some of the... uh, some of the issues that you may face if you don't understand these things. Uh, I encourage you to go to the moh.org website, moh.org. Under the Discipleship Training Tracks, you can find a, a, free download, a free downloadable PDF called The Law of Love, and it covers this, uh, much of the same information. And uh, fortunately, this one, uh, we had one... <laughs> A week or two ago, that was probably twice as long as this. So this one's a little bit shorter. It probably comes in under 40 minutes. And uh, so by that uh, by that alone, you know that it's a fairly fundamental and uh, basic presentation. Uh, get more information from that tract I was talking to you about. And uh, let's get started right away with Winky talking about love and selfishness. Right, friends. Let's look to the Lord again and ask him to really expand your consciousness now. Because we're going into the very basis of value. What makes a thing right and what makes a thing wrong? Let's look to the Lord. One more time. Heavenly Father, we ask you now in these next few moments that you really help us. We believe it is not possible for us to really know the Word of God unless your Spirit throws light on our minds. And so we ask now in the name of Jesus, you will grant us the gift of seeing. We know light is deadly without the gift of sight. And we pray you'll help us see what you say when you talk about love and about value. Speak to us this morning again. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends. We're going to come all the way back to God now and we're going to show you a simple thing. I had a, an answer... <laughs> I had an answer or a question from a, a boy who said he was an atheist once, and the question went something like this. He said, you say that God wants men to be unselfish. I said, right. You know. He said, you say that God has forbidden people to be selfish. Right. And that selfishness is the whole basis of being wrong. Right. And he said, next you say that God wants us to keep his laws, right? And the first law that God gave man was, you shall love me with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, right? Therefore, this guy comes with his sweeping, stunning climax, God has commanded us to be selfish, right? Wrong. And now you'll have to see why. Now, that's a very basic question. If you understand this, you can understand all kinds of things. Here is God, just a representation of God's great being. When God commands us, love me, why does God give us that law? First of all, I want you to understand this. God did not invent the law. He didn't invent it. It's not something he sat down and just invented it. 
It is something that has always been true. Now, when we say that God is good, what do we mean by that? When we say God is moral, when we say God is just, when we say God is holy, we understand something about God. And that is, we understand that God is good because he has chosen to be good. Now, what does good mean if you could not, if you wanted to be, be the opposite of that? Is goodness a thing? What is goodness to a man? Goodness is whether he conforms to that what he knows to be right or not. Okay? How many of you can see that if a person cannot be bad, he neither can be good? If there's no possibility of that person ever making or doing something opposite of good, he can't be called good. Say you couldn't do anything wrong. It was, you know, you, went, you wanted to, but you weren't able to. Then you would not be good either. Because rightness and wrongness is always conforming or non-conforming to that which is best. Doing that which is best or not doing that which is best. And when the Bible says these mind-blowing words, God is good, it means something very, very real about God. And I believe that God is good because he chooses to be. Now, if we say God is good, we are saying that God himself has a law to keep. And yet, when we look at God, we could say this. Well, is the law bigger than God then? If we say God himself has a law to keep, is there another God beyond God that tells God what to do? Or is some impersonal thing more important than God? That's right. And what is this law founded in? And where is the very, very basis of value? Now look at this. See God's being? Did God have a choice to have his being? No, it has always been here. Remember we said that the very first time we started off? But does, have, does God have a choice on what he does with his being? The answer is here. And when you see this, that everything we decide today is decided on the base of value, when we perceive or notice that something is more valuable than something else, the value of that thing obliges us to choose it. Now, I've just said a very mind-blowing statement. I want you to think of it. The value creates obligation. Let me give you a simple illustration here. If you're going out into a store and you girls are going shopping, see, and you're going to buy a dress. Now, I know what happens when girls go shopping to buy dresses. <laughs> they go right through all everything. You, what are you looking for? You're trying to find something that you like, that suits you, that's the right color, and not only that, you're looking for something that's the right price. Now, let's say you go into two different stores and you find exactly the same dress, the same size, and the same color. And one says $40 and the other one says $29. Which one do you buy? 
Well, you buy the one that you believe has the greatest value. And what is it that makes you choose this one dress above the other one? It is the value of that other dress that creates the obligation for you to buy it. Do you see this? Now, we are so constituted that if we see one of two things and we really see how valuable they are, the value of that obliges us to choose the most valuable above the one that is less valuable. Okay? Therefore, when God asks man to choose him, he is simply defining for us the thing that he sees as the most valuable thing in the universe. And I say this to you, God has not commanded us to love him simply because it is he who has commanded us. He has said, love me, put me first, because I see there is only one greatest value in the universe, and it is the value that I myself must choose, the value of my own being. Remember, our whole universe is upheld by God's being. Do you remember the illustration about the father and the child and the mother and the relative value, the mother's happiness and the child's happiness hangs on the father's happiness. And so the happiness of our whole created universe hangs on God's being and his value. And what God has done is this. He has looked through the whole universe, through all of time, space and eternity, for finding the most valuable thing. And to that end, God himself has decided to consecrate his supreme effort. And when he's looked through the whole universe, he comes up with one simple thing, his own being. There's nothing more valuable than that. So God unselfishly chooses his own being's highest good. And you know what that's called in the Bible? Self-love. And it happens to be framed in a command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, because he is the most valuable. And love your brother or your sister as you love yourself. And that's not selfishness. Do you see that self-love is the very opposite of selfishness? Self-love, if I wanted to give you a definition, would be this. It is to really see the value of your own self. And it means basically this. Uh, to, uh, to be happy and to dread misery. It involves accepting yourself for who you are. It involves taking care of yourself. It involves not destroying yourself. That's self-love and a command. And uh, there's a woman by the name of Anne Rand that has built a whole philosophy on a misconception of these two words. Anne Rand lays out a very heavy study that men, all men ought to take care of themselves. She lays a big study on Really proves overwhelmingly that all men really ought to love themselves. And then with a vast feminine logical jump, she leaps from self-love to selfishness and then comes on and says, the whole world ought to be selfish. And write a book called The Virtue of Selfishness. Now, do you see what has happened? People do not understand what God's law has said. The law of God says, love God because he is the most valuable. Love your brother and love yourself. 
It does not say to be selfish. And the difference is this. Self-love is a natural desire for happiness and dread of misery. Selfishness is wanting my happiness and dreading my misery and putting that supreme above the value or happiness and misery of all other beings in the universe, including God. This is an intelligent choice. The other one is unintelligent. This one here is wise and holy and good. It respects other people's values. Selfishness, the opposite of this, respects nobody's happiness except its own. A selfish man only chooses other people's good if it can in some way contribute to his own feeling of good. And it is strange how many forms of selfishness lie behind what looks like goodness. I'll give you an illustration. Here is a man, and he's a mayor of a city, and he comes into that city, and there's a widow who has had a husband die, you know, and she's got this big family, and she's starving. And this guy is up for election. So he comes and he brings a big box of groceries in. He says, are you Mrs. Sonsa? She says, yes. He says, I heard of your predicament, and uh, I've bought you some groceries. She says, oh, you're such a good man. He says, well, no, not really. You know, we all must help each other. After all, what are friends for? You know, he says this. And she says, oh, you're so good to me. He says, well, I tell you what. I'm trying to be elected in this town so I can help other people like you. He says, I wonder if you would uh, just, I wonder if you, you would vote for me in the next week. She says, oh, gladly. He says another thing, too. Other people really need to understand the kind of mayor that I would like to be. So I wonder if you just sign this little statement that, that told me that it tell, we can release this, and this press release. And she says, yeah, sure, she signs it. He says, there's another thing. So I have a television crew out here that, that have just come along with me to see these. And he says, and then he says, do you mind if the cameramen shoot me as I give you these groceries and stuff? And now, do you see where this character's heart is at? He looks so unselfish, so virtuous, so loving. And secretly, the only thing he really is doing is gratifying a desire for reputation. As a matter of fact, that widow woman found out that he got her daughter into trouble. He'd plan how he could kill that same woman for the same reason as he gave her the, gave her the groceries. Now, do you see how selfishness can pose as virtue? There's a great deal of men and movements that have begun in social help, and they look very virtuous. You hit them at the core, and you find they're selfish and rotten. God does not ask us to be selfish. He commands us to love ourselves, and that's what God himself does. God looks at his own value. He sees the whole universe half dependent on his happiness, and he says, unselfishly choose my being's highest good, just like as I have to. And when God chooses unselfishly his highest good, he sees that is most wise. Understand what the Bible God is like. If the Bible God found another God bigger than himself, which there is no other God, he would say, choose him. He's more important than me. This is what the Bible God is like. But there is no other greater God. There is no greater force or power in the universe. There's no more important thing than his own being. And so God says, unselfishly choose what I unselfishly choose, the highest good of the universe, namely my own being. Think now if you were God and you were the only person in the universe, what would you have to take care of? Your own being. See that? 
Now, when the whole, now you have a whole universe hanging on your being. Do you see how their happiness is dependent on your happiness? How that upholding and taking care of your being also upholds and takes care of theirs? So God is good because he has chosen to be, and that is a mind-blowing statement. Now, a lot of people confuse this. They think that right or wrong originate in the will of God instead of in the being of God. They believe that God invented right and wrong, that he just sat down and he said, all right, I've decided some things are going to be right. You do this because I said so. You do this because I happen to believe that that's what you ought to do. If that is true, then God would be. You couldn't call God good because by definition, anything God did would be good. As a matter of fact, if it was true that God's law originated in his will, God could choose the very opposite of what he is now choosing, and by definition it would be good. Matter of fact, God could take a baby, cut it up into slices, cook it, and eat it. And by definition that would be also good. And also that makes right and wrongness arbitrary. It makes it dependent on the will of the being, and no being's will can create what is there. Neither can God. He simply says, I know what is best. I've looked and I know. My own being. Unselfishly choose it and you will be holy. Like I am holy. How many of you understand this? Are you with me? Do you see that thing? Now let me give you an illustration that will sum up the whole difference between the way a Christian serves God and the way a sinner tries to. Imagine a man who is sent by a king to buy two crowns. To buy a crown. Here are the crowns. They're the only two in the crown shop. The king gives the man a thousand dollars. And he says to the man, buy the best crown that you can find. The servant of the king goes out to buy the crown. He looks at these two crowns and both of them have a price tag on them. This one says $1,000. This one says $1,000. The king has given him a command. Buy the best crown that you can find for the money I've given you. Can you see that this man is under command to choose the best? And he looks at these two crowns, one which is really beaten up and another one which is very beautifully done. Can you see that the king has commanded him to buy the best, but it is not the command primarily that obligates him to choose the good crown over the beaten up crown. It is the value of this crown that obligates him to choose it. You with me, girl? Do you see? The king has made a command. He says, get the best crown. But it is not primarily the command that makes that guy obligated to choose this crown. It is the value he sees that crown is. He says, this is the best crown. Then when he buys the crown, he fulfills the command of the king. But do you see it is the value that is the basis of obligation? Now, let me ask you this question, if you can roughly grasp that. Why should I serve God? 
Because he passed the law and said, you do it. Because it's the best. Because serving God is the most valuable and beautiful thing in the universe. Because he is who he is, I serve him. Do you see that? Having seen what kind of God the God of the Bible is, I see his value. That obligates me to choose him above all other values in the universe. When I am faced between two choices, and I see one as immeasurably superior, the value of that superior choice obligates me to make that choice. Whether that superior value has ever made a command or not, I'm still obligated to choose. Do you see the difference between the Christian and the legalist? The Christian looks at the command and he says, all right, I'll have to do it. He does not understand the value. Do you remember the parables in the Bible of a man who went out to find a treasure in a field? He didn't think it was there first. He was just digging in a field and wham! Suddenly he found the treasure. What did he do? He sold everything he had and he bought that worthless looking field. Why? Because he saw the value of it. He knew that inside that field was a treasure beyond his wildest dreams. That's why he sold everything he had. Why did I serve Jesus Christ? Because God came up and said, unless you serve me, I'm going to send you quick to hell as possible. That is true. But that's not the reason. Do you see this? That's why all appeals on the basis of hope or fear can have a selfish base. We say to kids, listen, do you want to go to heaven and give your life to Christ? See, that, that's not the reason. Listen, you're going to hell unless you give your life to Christ. That's still not the reason. Those are all true things. They are also part of the command. But why ought you to serve Jesus? Because he is the most beautiful person in the universe. It is his value that obligates me. Now, do you understand the difference between the law the king passed and the basis of the law? The basis is, choose the best. God's command then simply defines for us what is the best. And every man knows that basis. When a guy sins, then he goes against what he really knows to be the most valuable thing. When a man sins, he never sins simply because he wants to be sinful. He grabs something that he thinks will please him more at that particular time. You think back to the last time you did something wrong. Hopefully years ago. <laughs> think back to the time that you last did something wrong. Think what you did. Did you do it because you knew it was a, an intelligent thing and it was the best thing to do in the circumstances? Of course you didn't, dummy. What you did is if you said, ah, you know... I get this thing, I know it's not exactly the smartest thing to do, and I know it'll probably hurt along the line, but I'm going to do it anyway, because I want the goodies now. Do you see that? That's why God calls sin foolishness. Now, if you can grasp this, you've grasped the whole core of the gospel, if you can understand what was put on the board. When you go into the rap sessions later on in the afternoon, you may freak out over this, but... Can you see that it is the value of Jesus Christ? Why do we preach the cross? To bring men to repentance. Why do you preach on sin? You show how foolish selfishness is. And then you show how good God is. 
And those two things put incredible pressure, like a nutcracker on this hard kid. One of them, he sees how stupid he's been. Two, he's seen how good God has been. Crunch, nutcracks. Unless we understand this, we will not be effective in our witnessing. We'll come up to kids, we'll read the right, we'll say the right words, we'll give them the right commands, but we'll miss the point. That's very key. If you can understand that, you've got it. You've got the whole thing. You've got the core of the thing. You've got the difference between love and legalism. The legalist looks at the law. And it's a good law. Nothing wrong with it. We've already talked about that. The Christian looks at the lawgiver and knows who he is and how lovely he is. And he does right because he sees that's the best thing to do. He doesn't serve God because of what God can give him or what God will give him if he doesn't serve God. He serves God because he loves him. Now, have you girls ever, be, ever loved anybody? Ever met a boyfriend that you really liked? Did you like him because he gave you presents? You think about that for a while, see? What is it that makes a guy or a girl love each other? They look and see what a lovely person that person is. See, that is the value that obligates. When I find what kind of God God is, it's his value that obligates me to choose him and put him first above all other values in the universe because it is supreme. Here's an answer to one of the profoundest philosophical questions. What is value? The answer, God is. His own being is the most valuable thing in the universe. What is ultimate reality? God's being is there. God's being is there. He is there. That's the ultimate thing. God is there. We are here. That's where we begin. Now, friends, I hope you understand that simply. You can talk about this a little bit afterwards and chew it through. But let's see what God has done. Back to our little... Do you remember you drew this little chart? It said love, and then it said the ten, and then it said the two, and then it said love. What are the Ten Commandments? They're a list. They're a list that tell us in words or in letter what value is. Question, do we need a list? Well, you don't need a list if you know the one who's most valuable and you're willing to obey him whatever he shows you. Do you need a list if you don't love this person? You sure do. Keep you in line, see? Have you ever had your mother, before you left for school in the morning, give you a list of things to do and things not to do? Every morning... Before you arrive, here's a list. You said, all right, do this, do this, do this and that, and do not do this, this, this and that. And when you come home, I'll give you another one. Why do you have to have a list? Because you don't trust the one who gave it, that's why. If I don't love my parents or I don't love God, I need a list. And you won't do this or else. I'll tan your backside. That's what my... That used to say, see? But if I love the one who is the whole basis of value, I don't need a list. Come along, show me what to do. 
But understand, the list is not wrong. It is just unnecessary, except in terms of defining what is best, so we don't just run on our feelings, you know, say, well, I feel this is the loving thing to do. You know, sleep with somebody tonight because I feel this is loving. You know, that's what Joe Fletcher said. We need a list simply to define for us what value is. And God has given us a word so we don't run just on our feelings. But the spirit of the law is the key. Now we're going to look rapidly at Matthew. We're going to see how the Pharisees blew it. In the book of Matthew, Jesus came in. And in Matthew chapter 5, you'll find this. Jesus said in verse 19, Therefore, whosoever shall break one of these, the least commandments, shall teach men soon. So, it's obviously ignorantly. He should be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. And then look at verse 38. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. All right? That's part of the law, the Ten Commandments. Now, the question we're going to ask is this. Why was that law given? An eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth. It's part of the penalty, too. God has given the penalty and the law for this reason. He said, your eye is valuable. If you take somebody's eye, then as a penalty, they can take your eye. That's justice. I want you to imagine now two guys fighting in Israel, two kids fighting, having a sword fight. You know, just for fun. They have sword fights when they were kids. He sticks him right in the eye and he pulls his sword out and there's an eye sitting right on the end of his sword. Oh! Brother looks at the eye and the other brother looks at the eye with what's left of his eye. And... One brother jumps up and down, he's so scared, and the other brother jumps up and down because he's lost his eye. See that? And it's quite an accident. What's the purpose of this law? It's, it's to regulate damage that a person can inflict in vengeance. Somebody comes up and he hates him, he says, pow, and he punches his eye out. The law says, one eye for one eye. If you want to take justice out on this man, you can only knock one of his eyes out. You can't bash out both of his eyes, knock all his teeth out and jump on his head so fast you have to unlace your shoelaces to blow your nose. You have to do all of those, see, only an eye for an eye. Now the Pharisees, they understood the letter very well. Yes, an eye for an eye. A truth, they understood that. But they forgot the purpose of it. See? And so here's these two brothers, they're fighting. And one of them, they're fighting and then here comes the Pharisee walking down the road. And these two kids are jumping up and down, looking at this eye, you know. Pharisee comes across, he says, what seems to be the problem here? And this kid says, oh, he says, we had a little fun sword fight and I stuck my brother's eye and it came right out on my sword. The Pharisee says, really? <laughs> brother says, yeah. And he says, then here, take the sword and knock his eye out. And the kid says, oh no, I don't want to do that, it was an accident. The Pharisee says, you know the law. See, they completely blew 
through the whole thing. They did not understand the God who gave it. And this kid, he, he, you will keep the law or you will die. Now take his eye out quickly, you know. <laughs> this poor kid, he had, you know, and he didn't want to. He, he knew it was an accident. See, and it, precious eye for an eye, a truth for a truth, life for life. See, this kind of stuff. Jesus came along and he went boom. Didn't throw this out, see. Didn't undo it. He simply said this. I say unto you, whosoever shall smite you on your right cheek, turn to him the other. Go above justice. Show mercy. This is what God's preference is. If you can intelligently, wisely show mercy to a person, then show mercy. Does that throw out justice when you are merciful? No. Providing you're wise in the exercise of mercy. And you'll see whenever God exercises mercy, he always does it wisely. He never does it foolishly. If God cannot wisely exercise mercy, he judges injustice. It's as simple as that. Now, this solves some very practical problems. Let's say a Christian is being beaten up by somebody. And he doesn't want people to beat him up. Somebody slaps him, wham, pow, you know, so he turns his other cheek, pow, and he hits that one too, you know. Then puts his nose out, crunch, and that <laughs> Now, is the Christian a doormat? Because he stands there and he says, Oh, Lord, you know, bless me again, with another slap in the face. See? Does a Christian have to have his personage invaded by somebody because he is loving? The answer is, if he does not want to show mercy, say he does. Hopefully he can do that, and we'll break this in his heart. But he can always fall back on justice. Listen, nobody can beat up on my person because there's a law in the country that says you can't do that. And if I really want to, and I could be legally justified in doing this as a Christian, I could sue a dude who beat up on my person. I can appeal to the law. I'm not to take justice in my own hands and beat back up on his person. But I can take him to law and see that justice is executed on that man. That's why we have a law. Do you see that? Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, they had scary laws. When a guy killed somebody in a family, you know who the ones who, who were that, that, that carried out the death sentence? The family and relatives are the ones that, were, that were, were killed. And who were the ones that most wanted to see justice carried out? They had very fair laws. You... If you had a girlfriend and she was killed by some guy, then you were the one who threw the rocks. It was something else, but you had to do it legally. You couldn't just go up and throw a rock at him. You had to bring him before the judge and say, this is where it's at. They had to judge the case. And then when they passed the sentence, you were the executioner. Now, do you see this? How many of you understand this? This is justice. But God asks us to go above justice and to show mercy, and that's a powerful thing. That's what he does. God has never, since the fall in the garden, given strict justice to man. He has always tried to show mercy. Strict justice, he'd send us all to hell before lunchtime. See that? Mercy goes beyond. And if it can find a way to pardon, it will do it. Jesus reduced the Ten Commandments to two. I read about that. You can see that the ten basically are split like this. Three of them are man to God. The other seven are man to man. And kind of at the hinge, whether you 
Kind of at the hinge is the rest day thing, which everybody's supposed to have, one day of rest. The day in which it, it, it is observed as being a hassle with different people. I have an uncle who's a Seventh-day Adventist, who's in charge of the whole Seventh-day Adventist in, in New Zealand. We've had some great raps on, on the day on which it's observed. The point is, and the important part is, it is part of God's law, not necessarily the day in which it's observed, but the fact that there is a day. And uh, we can give you some studies on that if you're interested. No man has a right to work seven days a week. Not if you want to break God's law. Do you see that? That sort of stuck in the hinge in the middle. Very interesting. It's, you're not quite sure whether to put it with the man commands or the God commands. But there's the way it's split. Jesus just took that split and he said, Love God and love your brother as you love yourself. Boom. Romans 13 finishes this off for us. Paul comes the full circle in Romans 13 and he tells us after that passage we read last night on government, Paul says, if you're going to owe anybody anything, owe no man anything but to love one another. Verse 8, for he that loves another has fulfilled the law. For if there be any commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. To be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended or summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your brother as yourself. Love works no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the list. If I love God, I won't put other gods before him. If I love God, I won't make little statues to represent him when he fills the whole universe. If I love my brother, I won't steal his stuff. If I love my brother, I won't kill him. If I love my brother, I won't cheat against him. If I love my brother, I won't covet his stuff. If I love my brother, I won't steal his wife. If I love him, and if I love God, I won't break any of those. And there's the base. How many of you understand that? Great, you've made it. Closing prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your law, and you say it is holy. We thank you for the Ten Commandments that you gave to define the values that you've given to man. Now, Lord, we apologize for this society because this in common with many other cultures around the world have thrown out the law and placed such a high value on other things outside of your law that justice and truth have been destroyed in the land. We see this happen in the courts of this nation. As more and more people who break the law, which is founded in your law, no longer are punished, no longer are sentenced, no longer is justice shown. And with the destruction of justice also goes the possibility of mercy. You have given good and fair laws. They are valuable, valuable thing. And we thank you that the Christian knows you and loves you and does what you say, not because he has a list, but because he knows who you are. In Jesus' name we praise you. Amen. Love and selfishness. I hope you understand the difference now. There's a big difference between love and self between self-love and selfishness again i encourage you to go download the free track at moh.org look under the discipleship training tracks and find the law of love it's a free pdf download that and do some more study on your own and uh, that's it for this week and we'll see you guys later <music>